Part 7 Dhamma Practice We are like a chicken, that's all. The chicken's born, has chicks, and spends its day scratching around in the dirt. And then, in the evening, it goes to sleep. In the morning, it jumps down to the ground and starts scratching around again. And then, in the evening, it goes to sleep again. Is there any point to it? No. We are like chickens, like creatures with no wisdom. The owner comes every day with food. He takes hold of the chicken and lifts it up in his arms to look at. The chicken thinks the owner is being affectionate. As for the owner, he's thinking, hmm, it's getting heavy. How much does it weigh? Is it up to two or three kilos yet? The chicken doesn't know what's going on. The owner brings it rice to eat, and it's happy. It thinks the owner loves it. It eats it all up, gets fat and thinks it's got it made. But as soon as the chicken weighs two or three kilos, that's it, off to the market. That's how most people lead their lives. They don't see the danger, they're deluded just like the chicken. The owner takes the chicken off to the market. It's in the back of a truck, and it's still clucking, quack, 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 having a great time. Then the car reaches the market, and the owner sells the chicken to a Chinese stall owner. The chicken still doesn't suspect anything. The Chinese guy tears the feathers off its neck and the chicken thinks the guy is grooming it. The chicken is that stupid. It's only when the knife has cut its throat that the chicken realises, Oh, I'm dead. We don't see our own life. We don't know how to remedy our defilements. From the moment that he established Wat Pa Pong, Luang Po began teaching his lay disciples that their responsibilities weren't confined to offering food to the Sangha and making merit. Dhamma isn't something far away, he'd say. It's not something belonging to the monks. Dhamma is the truth of all living beings, and the freedom from suffering is possible for anybody, monastic or lay, who cultivates the Eightfold Path. Everyone, monastics and lay Buddhists, have an equal opportunity to practice Dhamma and to reflect on it. And the Dhamma which monastics and lay meditators reflect on is the same Dhamma and leads to the same peace by the same means. Practicing Dhamma was the way to make the best possible use of a human birth that was rare and precious. He said that procrastinating about the effort to cultivate one's mind and then lamenting about it when you were already old and approaching death was like being an incompetent gardener. You plant beans, melons, pumpkins, green beans and so on. Once they grow up, they mature and then they go rotten. Knowing that, you pick them before that happens, don't you? If you want to cook and eat them or sell or barter them, so that you derive some benefit from them. Then do it in a timely way. What's the use of sitting around, lamenting when they have gone rotten? On her retirement, 
Ubasika Ranjuan, a highly regarded author and civil servant, left the lay life and went to live in the nuns' community at Wat Bapong. In 1983, when it became clear that Long Po's illness would prevent him resuming his teaching duties, Ubasika Ranjuan decided to continue her training under Long Po's great contemporary, Ajahn Buddhadasa. In later years, she went on to become a widely respected Dhamma teacher. Her life changed direction after listening to the teachings of Long Po. Like most Buddhists, I'd make merit, listen to Dhamma talks, put food in the monks' bowls, take the precepts and all those kinds of things, and I thought that was enough. I never considered that anything more was required to be a true Buddhist. Then I heard Lung Po give a Dhamma talk for the first time, and I realized that the most important thing that a Buddhist should do is to train his or her mind, and that to do so would be fulfilling the deepest wish of the Buddha. For most of the villagers who came to the monastery every week, their basic meditation practice was chanting. Many of them would memorize the entire Pali Thai chanting book and would chant at home in the morning and evening. It was a calming practice, one that could bring joy into the mind, and the Thai translations provided them with key teachings at their fingertips. But Luang Po encouraged them to practice sitting meditation as well, and to cultivate a more profound understanding of their lives. Don't forget to meditate on the mantra Puto, and to reflect on head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin, so as to see the fragility and the impermanence of the physical body. Think about it. Reflect on it continually. When your thinking is correct, then your mind will be at ease. Undesirable consequences will disappear, and there will be no suffering. If your thinking is incorrect, suffering will increase. In Dhamma books written in English, a handy distinction is made between the Pali word Dhamma, written with a capital D, which usually means the truth of things. The teachings and practices that lead towards the realization of that truth, and dhamma, written with a lowercase d, meaning thing. In Pali itself and in the Thai language, however, there is no orthographic means of distinguishing the two, and the pronunciation is identical. In fact, there is an organic relationship between dhamma, meaning truth, and dhammas, meaning things. I.e., knowing dhamma or truth is, in essence, knowing dhammas, things. Lung Po referred to this frequently when he was trying to bring dhamma practice down to earth for his audience and emphasize its practicality. The word dhamma means all things. There is nothing that is not a dhamma. Dhamma includes all phenomena that make up our body and mind. The Buddha taught us to understand all things that are inside and outside of ourselves. The practices that enable us to do that are called dhamma. The understanding of these different meanings of the word demands that we understand ourself. If we understand ourself, then we understand dhamma, 
because Dhamma lies within us. He said that Dhamma practice, realizing truth, consisted of developing the correct relationship to Dhammas, things. The essential nature of Dhammas, or things, is a constant arising and ceasing. This nature is unaffected by whether or not a Buddha is enlightened. It can never disappear from the world because it is the way things are. Dhamma isn't something that can become extinct. The enlightenment factors are still present and so are practitioners. The reason you don't get enlightened is because you're still so lax in your practice. Dhamma practice wasn't some esoteric pursuit suitable only for monastics. It was a matter of developing wisdom about your own life. Sometimes, lay people would come to him and say that they couldn't meditate because they were illiterate. Why do you need to be literate? You put your hand in the fire and it's hot. You put it in water and it's cool. Do you understand that much? If you do, you can cultivate the Dhamma. The word bhavana is monk's language. In ordinary language, we say consider or reflect. Just know whatever arises in your mind. When anger arises in your mind, are you aware of it? Greed arises, are you aware of it? What's it like to be angry? What's it like to feel desire? Just keep looking at that. What else did you think it was about? If you can move and breathe, if you know the difference between hot and cold, and between liking and disliking, then you can still practice the Dhamma, because the Dhamma appears in this very body and mind. Don't think the Dhamma is a long way away. It's with us. It's about nothing else but us. Just look. One moment you're happy, and the next you're sad. One moment you're satisfied, and the next you're not. Then you're getting angry with that person and hating this one. That's all Dhamma. Nothing belongs to us. We don't even belong to us. In the end, we disintegrate according to the law of impermanence. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth. Skin. If you contemplate these things well, then you will see them in their true light. These things are not ours, because they're not under our control. The whole body is the same. When it wants to hurt, it hurts. When it wants to get old, it gets old. And when it wants to die, then it dies. It never listens to us about any of it. When you get a headache or a stomachache, has your body ever asked your permission first? Mindfulness is your business. It was mindfulness, bringing to mind, bearing in mind all that needed to be brought to and held there at any moment, that Luang Po taught was the key to the practice. In daily life, one of the most important aspects of mindfulness practice was keeping the precepts in the forefront of consciousness. The meditator had to be constantly aware of the presence or absence of defilements in the mind. 
When someone asked him whether it was possible to do that all day, he replied, right up until the day you die. All day is a bit too short a time. As long as you were breathing, you could be aware. A woman complained that she had so many tasks to see to that she did not have time to practice mindfulness as well. He said, That is your task. Maintaining mindfulness is a task. People who are mindful perform their tasks well. If you lose your mindfulness for two minutes, you're crazy for two minutes. For one minute, then you're crazy for one minute. Not speaking harshly to anybody, that is a mindfulness practice. You need to be aware of what mindfulness is and how it functions. Are you thinking of harming others? Is your thinking wrong? Be aware of this. Others can't see your mind, but you can. With mindfulness encompassing your mind, then morality, concentration and wisdom can arise. Look into this. When you're going to say something, mindfulness is like having someone there telling you what to say who knows the implications of your words and whether you're repeating yourself. When you don't know what to do, mindfulness knows. You must admonish yourself. That's how you become your own refuge. Otherwise, if you think you'd like to do something that's not right, you look about from side to side. You see your mother's not around, your father's not around, there's no teacher present, nobody can see you. Okay, you do it immediately. Someone who thinks like that has already gone to the bad. You'll do something bad when nobody can see you. But what about yourself? Aren't you someone as well? Do you think it's possible to do something without this person seeing? Lung Po summarized. With constant mindfulness, everything is Dhamma. If you know the Dhamma, it's not possible to lie to yourself or others. Looking at the mind meant constantly monitoring it to see what was causing suffering. There had to be some kind of craving and attachment in the mind for suffering to arise. It's very simple. Look at where you're attached. When there's strong suffering in the mind, or so much happiness that you get carried away by it, then there's been an error. The error was in taking ownership of the mental state. By exploring where the mind is stuck, mindfulness arises. If you have constant mindfulness and alertness in every posture, then you will know right and wrong. You will know pleasure and sadness. And when you know what these things are, then you will know the method of dealing with them so that they don't cause suffering. This is how I have people learn about samadhi. When it's time to sit, then sit for a reasonable time. That's not wrong either. Know what sitting meditation is all about. But cultivating samadhi isn't just sitting. You must allow yourself 
to experience things and pass those experiences on for contemplation. So, what can you come to know through contemplation? You know that this is impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self. Nothing is fixed. This is beautiful, I really like it. You caution yourself, it's changeful. I don't like this at all. Tell yourself, it can change, can't it? That's utterly correct, no question about that. But you go for things. I'm going to do that. It seems so cut and dried. And you're after it already, don't do that. However much you like something, you must remember that the liking can change. You eat some foods and, oh, this is delicious, I love it. That's how you feel about it. You must reflect that the feeling is not a sure thing. Do you want to know how it's not a sure thing? Try eating your favorite food every day. Every single day. Before long, you'll be complaining that it doesn't taste so good anymore. Give it a try. Then you'll like something else instead. And that won't be a sure thing either. This needs to be taken up for contemplation. Everything's like the breath. There has to be inhalation and exhalation. The nature of the breath is to change. Everything that exists does so through this kind of change. Boxing Clever The unpredictable nature of our lives and the importance of making the best use of the time we have was a major theme of Luang Por's teachings. Death can come at any time. Luang Por would say that by refusing to face up to the truth of our inevitable death, we don't see how important it is to abandon bad qualities and develop the good. Cultivating the mind is vitally important because at the time of death, it is the goodness that we have accumulated, the merit that provides our true refuge. Wealth and property will all be separated from you, but the things which you have built up in your mind will not. If your mind is evil, it will take you on an evil path. If your mind is good, it will take you on a good path. Your possessions can't make you good or bad. Only your mind can do that. Understand this point. Wise people prepare not only for physical death, but also for the small deaths of separation from the loved by reflecting on the truths of life again and again, like boxers training for a fight by working on sandbags. If they've never trained, or if they've never burst the sack of sand with their kicks, then, when they get into the ring, they have their teeth knocked out. When your health goes, or your child dies, or your wealth is lost, then all you'll be able to do is cry because you've never prepared for it. You'll be a boxer who hasn't done his training. You must keep training yourself with the truths of impermanence, suffering and not-self. Constantly reflect on Dhamma. Then, when something happens, you'll recognize it as just an expression of those things, impermanence, suffering and not-self. You won't suffer too much because you'll see it for what it is. 
prepare yourself. You can't afford to be indifferent to this. If you were to climb into the ring right now, you'd be knocked straight out of it again. You have to train. Luang Po said losses may be endured without tears and grief when they are seen through the perspective gained by training the mind. When the mind has developed right view, it has an inner refuge and doesn't add any unnecessary pain to the loss. But usually, when there are fires and floods, you allow them to burn and flood your mind as well. When someone dies, you die with them. If that's the case, then you have no place of rest. On another occasion, he compared this perception of impermanence to seeing a drinking glass as already broken. He said that the Buddha could see the broken glass within the unbroken. Anybody who could see the glass as already broken would not get attached to it, because they would recognize it as a temporary configuration of its constituent elements that would eventually shatter. All things should be looked upon similarly as bearing within them their inevitable destruction, including the physical body. This did not mean that being doomed to death, the body is useless and people might as well commit suicide. It means that it was to be put to good purpose as long as it was in a state to do so. The Wisdom of Enough Luang Po spoke of elderly lay disciples who became discouraged and depressed by their growing inability to recall the words of the chanting texts or to learn new ones. Luang Po said that memory loss was not an obstacle to Dhamma practice because there was far more to Dhamma than chanting. In daily life, the Dhamma was to be found from searching for the right or optimal amount in every matter. When you're eating, you need to make the mouthful of rice just the right size in order to chew it conveniently. That is Dhamma. If the mouthful is as small as a monkey apple seed, or as big as a chicken's egg, then it won't be the right size. And that won't be Dhamma. It's the same when you're making a dress or a pair of trousers. They have to be just the right size for the wearer. Make them too small for the wearer, and he can't put them on. Too large, and they look ridiculous. The clothes that you wear to the monastery, if they're clean and without holes, that's fine. If you're poor, then struggling to find the money to buy more expensive clothes, exceeding your income, just leads to difficulties. Protect your mind from excessive desires for things which you don't need and have no right to. Pursue your desires in correct and appropriate ways. When you get what you want, there's no need to get overly happy about it. And when you lose something, don't get overly sad. Don't allow your mind to get carried away with forms, sounds, odors, tastes and touch sensations. Know whatever things coming into the mind are making it dull, sullied and disturbed and use whatever means necessary to chase them out. This is what it means to practice Dhamma. The mind is most important. Acting well or speaking well depends on the mind. Harmful actions and harmful speech depend on the mind. That's why we need to train ourselves with sitting 
and walking meditation, and with reflecting on our experience. That's all it is. One of the most enjoyable features of Luang Po's Dhamma talks was his use of everyday words and phrases to convey profound points of Dhamma. One such phrase was Man Gok He Nan Le, rendered here as That's All It Is. It's one of those simple phrases that defy easy translation. It's used to deflate, often employed to tell someone who's making too much out of a matter that it's less valuable less important than they think, that it doesn't affect the main issues at hand, that it is, when all said and done, a limited, unsatisfactory thing. The nearest parallel English expression might be the dampening, so what? I'm going to give you a short, abbreviated teaching to use in your daily life. Everyone inwardly recite, that's all it is. This one phrase is enough to reduce your suffering. Everything leaves us, dies to us. However good and noble, beautiful or ugly things might be, they're all part of the world. You will have to leave them behind when you die. Don't attach to them at all. If you have a responsibility, then fulfill it. If it's your responsibility, to make a living in order to look after your family, then go ahead. Make enough to eat, enough to live. Be content with what you can make, a lot or a little. Or if you're unsuccessful, then be at peace with your failure and then try again. Whatever the case, this mantra, that's all it is, is always appropriate. Your suffering will naturally recede. That's what it means to live wisely. Whenever you take things up to reflect on them, through this phrase it will all become Dhamma. These words can be used as a tool. Bhavana Some five years or so before the end of his teaching career, Luang Po gave a talk to the lay supporters gathered together on an observance day night. It's a talk on the topic of bhavana that summarizes much of his teaching on Dhamma practice. Bhavana, or cultivation, means the action of creating or improving. Any effort put into creating or developing goodness and wisdom was bhavana. In fact, giving and virtuous conduct should also be seen as forms of bhavana. He said, In giving, in keeping precepts, there must be Dhamma cultivation at every moment. Even if you give a single lump of rice, or a single pair of trousers, or give just a small amount of anything, you feel happy because you've made a gift of something that belonged to you, with no buying or selling involved. After the gift has been made, both the one who gives and the one who receives feel content. Those feelings didn't exist before. The creation of those feelings is called cultivation, bhavana. The benefits of giving did not end with the act itself. He also urged his audience to practice the meditation of recollection of generosity, chaganusati. By bringing to mind one's kind actions in the past, great joy could arise in the mind 
and suppress the hindrances to lucid calm and wisdom. Cultivation of the Dhamma was to be carried on in every posture. In daily life, the emphasis should be on reflecting on experience in the light of Dhamma. Whether you're working or performing some good action, whatever you're doing, cultivate the Dhamma by reflecting on what's going on. Cultivation doesn't just mean sitting. Standing can be cultivation. Walking can be cultivation. Sitting and lying down can be cultivation. In every posture, it means trying to make your thinking correct. Lung Po used the word Puk Dong, translated here as correct, to mean conforming to the nature of things. Tuk Dong was an important word for him. On one occasion, he summarized the Buddha's teaching with the words, Dhamma means correctness. By making thinking correct, he was not necessarily pointing to the cultivation of specific correct thoughts, but rather to thinking that was free of defilement, thinking that took into account the realities of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self. Not harming yourself or others, making whatever you do beneficial, doing only what's correct, speaking correctly, thinking correctly, all the kinds of correctness are the merit that arises from bhavana. This effort to cultivate Dhamma by constantly looking at experience with the eye of wisdom is rendered here as reflection, a translation of the Thai word bicharana, which has meanings ranging from investigation to consideration to contemplation. He pointed out to his audience that this power of reflection is not esoteric. Everyone already possesses it to some extent and uses it in their daily life. A lack of it always causes difficulties. Buying, selling, exchanging, whatever you're doing, you have to cultivate. You have to reflect, to consider. Your income is so much. Your expenditure is so much. You need to do this first and then do that. You need to plan things out. It's all bhavana. Correct bhavana puts you at ease and makes the mind lucidly calm. Everybody, whether you live in a village, a monastery, wherever you are, if you reflect with a correct understanding of things, then it's bhavana. The ability to consider things with a clear mind prevented being swayed by negative emotions or consumed by fear. He gave an example of the cultivation of wisdom in daily life by reflecting on experience. I once heard Ajahn Buddha Dasa giving a talk on the radio. He said when he was a boy he was terrified of ghosts. He would take the cattle out to graze in the morning and return in the evening. On the way home he would pass a cremation forest and he would be afraid and would climb up on the buffalo's back. The buffalo would be munching grass indifferently. One day, as he sat there on the buffalo's back, he thought about it. Hmm, this buffalo is better than me. It's not afraid of ghosts. It's happily chomping away on the grass. 
It's the one sitting on its back that's afraid of this and that, constantly full of dread. As he considered it, he saw that fear arises from thinking. It's a conditioned phenomenon. Using wisdom in daily life, he explained, is the ability to recognize and reflect on the impermanence of our experience. The wise person takes nothing for granted. Fools assume that tomorrow will be more or less the same as today and that we will be more or less the same person throughout our life. They are heedless of the truth of things, without perspective, caught up in whatever the present state of affairs happens to be. Wealth, rank, fame, success, none of these things, if gained honestly, were bad in themselves. The problems came when people identified with them too much. The result was a form of intoxication. Don't get drunk on these things. If you can get rich, then get rich. If you can't hold on to your wealth and become poor, then be poor, but don't get drunk on it. Don't be drunk with your poverty and don't get drunk on your wealth. If you're suffering, don't get drunk on your suffering. If you're happy, don't get drunk on your happiness. If you're young, don't get drunk on your youth. And if you're old, don't get drunk on your old age. This heedlessness, the refusal to face up to these simple truths of life that all beings are on a path to old age and death, feeds a pride and conceit that lies at the heart of human suffering. Luang Po, comparing relationships to a road, said problems arose the moment that people became lost in self-views. In this monastery, in this Dhamma hall, if anyone thinks, I'm better than you are, or you're more stupid than I am, or I'm more intelligent than you are, or you're not like me, and so on, bumps and potholes appear. Whenever anyone says or does anything, they look at each other with mistrust. But, he said, reflection on the Buddha's teachings that remind us of our common humanity will ease your anxieties and attachments. He told his audience that despite all the people sitting listening to his talk, there was just one thing really going on, the relentless, ownerless process of change. He said that the teaching that we can find nothing solid in our body or mind that is really who we are or truly belongs to us is difficult to take. People without self-awareness hearing such words get angry and complain that Dhamma talks on such matters are unpleasant or offensive. When you say, reflect on this, you were born to die, life is unreliable, it's even worse, people get up and leave. They can't stand it. They think you're talking about base, inauspicious things. Things are born and then they die. The more these people hear, the more frightened they become. They don't want to listen and they leave. But the truths of life are irrefutable and it's wise to face up to them and reflect. The Buddha taught us to cultivate. We are all the same, rich or poor. We're born we get old, we get sick, and then we die in very similar ways. When you dwell on this kind of dumber reflection, then your mind will find an even consistency wherever you go.
But as Long Po would note, most people do not apply their minds in that way. They grasp onto things until they suffer and then carry that suffering around with them without realizing what's happening. He returned to his theme that he was teaching more than a meditation technique. Bhavana doesn't mean sitting cross-legged with your eyes closed. Some people come to the Wat every day, and on the observance day they practice sitting meditation. But as soon as they get home, they throw it all away. They quarrel with their spouse or their children, quarrel with all the people around them, thinking that they are no longer meditating. When they meditate, they close their eyes in order to make merit. But when they finish meditating, the merit doesn't go with them. They just take the demerit. They have no endurance. They are not practicing Dhamma. Actually, this practice can be done anywhere, in the what or outside it. It's like studying in a good school. Once you've learned how to read at school, then you can read at home, in the fields or in the forest. You can read in a group or you can read alone. If you know how to read, you don't have to run off to the school every time. You can read whenever you want. His definition of someone who knows how to cultivate was When you have wisdom, whether you're out in the fields or you go into the forest, live in a big group or a small one, whether you're blamed or praised, you have a constant, thoroughgoing knowledge of what's going on. And that's what it means to be a cultivator. You have to know the nature of all mental states. When you do, you're at ease. You're someone who knows how to bawana. You have a single object. Lumpur is using the phrase single object here in an unusual way. Based on the Pali Ekagata Ramana, it would usually be used in reference to the development of samadhi. In this context, Lumpur explained it to mean no entanglement. There is no entanglement with any object because the mind does not grasp at experience as self or belonging to self. Thus, the mind dwelling on a single object does not mean that it's focused on one particular phenomenon, but on the nature of things, anicca, dukkha and anatta. It is the letting go of attachment to phenomena through seeing their true nature that is correct cultivation. Standing, you must be a cultivator. Walking, you must be a cultivator. Sitting, you must be a cultivator. And lying down, you must be a cultivator. The reason why cultivation must be practiced in all postures is because death can occur in any posture. Cultivation is a preparation for death. If you only cultivate in the sitting posture, what will happen if your death approaches while you are in another posture? The same argument applies to the arising of defilement in the mind. Have you ever been angry while you were lying down, or are you only angry when you sit with your eyes closed? If you're going to depend solely on sitting meditation, 
then how can you cultivate? Cultivation means a thoroughgoing and comprehensive knowledge of what's going on. The Buddha had us be mindful and have self-awareness, wisdom and circumspection while standing, walking, sitting and lying down, able to see the flawed and unflawed states of mind at all times. That's what it means to be a cultivator. If you have this constant knowledge, then nothing can affect you adversely. The mind is constantly smooth and at ease. The mind is in its normal state. Towards the end of his teaching career, Luang Po read and was impressed by the newly published Thai translations of Chinese Zen masters such as Huang Po. This became apparent in the way in which he began to talk about the distinction between the mind itself and mental states. He started to use terms like original mind, not as philosophical positions, but as a skillful means to be used for looking within. At the end of this talk, Luang Po emphasized that people make a mistake in complaining about their mind being in turmoil. He said that there's nothing wrong with the mind itself. It's naturally at ease. It's the defilements, the craving which are the problem. It was important to separate the two. It's like the leaves in the forest. Normally, the leaves are still. So, when they flutter about, what's the cause of that? It's because of the wind blowing. If there's no wind, then the leaves remain in their normal, still state. Our mind, our original mind is the same. It's naturally at peace and clean. What swings about all the time is a new mind, a false mind, constantly dragged here and there by craving, swinging between pleasure and pain. That isn't the mind itself. Remember this point. When your mind becomes busy and confused, then remember what I'm telling you. This is not your mind. Your mind is free of all this. Its nature is pure and clean. This is a false mind, an untrained mind. Go away and think about this. Then you will know how to discriminate in your Dhamma practice. Don't watch over anything else but your mind. Luang Po said that Dhamma practice meant searching for the natural, original mind. Once that was recognized, then nothing could stir it up. So many people gave up cultivation because they thought their mind was too busy and confused. It was vitally important to know that the mind was never turbulent. The turbulent was the defilements. The practice began and ended in the mind. It was not a matter of starting with generosity and precepts and gradually working up to meditation. Keeping the five precepts was necessary for keeping the mind free of disturbance, but the inner work was vital. If you reach that place where the mind is in its normal state, there will be nothing to disturb you, like leaves in a windless place. Take this away as your homework. Look into the mind. Keep removing what is not so good until you reach the leaf that no wind blows. Reach the pure mind. The Buddha said that right there lies the path to freedom from suffering.
At the end of the talk, Luang Po gave a rousing call for diligence. Life is short and uncertain. Don't waste what little time you have. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. Right now, what are you doing? The Buddha bashes people like this, and they're indifferent. They don't feel anything. The days and nights are passing, passing, never slowing down. What are you up to? What are you doing with your life? That's what he's asking. Ordinary people hear that, and they're unmoved. But people who have supporting conditions hear this, and they think, what am I doing? Am I suffering? Am I happy? What are the inner causes of that happiness? What would add to it? That's how you should be thinking. You have to practice the Dhamma in order to realize the nature of your own mind.